Good morning, and thanks a lot for coming. While Jeff is getting the slideshow up here, I'll explain a little bit of the background of this project. And many years ago, I was the local preservation officer for Butte Silver Bow, and one thing that I was fascinated with was uh, a piece of the landscape and a little town that was clearly different than anything else around it and rather isolated and discreet, and that was the town of Ramsey that is about a few miles uh, west of Silver Bow, um, south of I-90, uh, I uh, and, and west of Butte. Uh, and it was clearly a distinct landscape there, and so it ended up in uh, a National Register nomination and the creation of a historic district for this little town. So that's the origins of, of this project. So it's been a while since I actually worked on uh, the primary research for this. In this conference, we've been hearing a lot about the turmoil and strife that characterized Montana throughout uh, World War I. And we will see also what an important turn po turning point World War I was for Montana and the rest of the nation. And I think Michael Punk's lecture uh, last night really pointed out well uh, a uh, kind of the extreme end of all the troubles that uh, the state was experiencing at this time. At this time, but there's one little place that doesn't seem to have uh, uh, experienced that kind of turmoil, and that was Ramsey, Montana. And apparently, it flourished during the World War One years uh, and sort of defied the larger pattern. Why it existed as a oasis within the um, larger uh, uh, World War I period was that it was a creation of private capital. And that is, Ramsey is an example of a movement that swept through some corporations in the first half of the 20th century called welfare capitalism. And this was when some companies that were large enough or um, concerned enough that they attempted to create the most efficient way to produce profit and to deal, to make the most profit, they needed to control the most volatile aspect of their production and that was labor. And one way to stave off unionization and progressive reforms that were working toward changes in, in labor management, they could do this through a privatized social engineering and company towns like Ramsey were an example of that. DuPont's aspirations for worker control contrasted sharply with what was happening in Butte, only seven miles away. And there, Anaconda Copper attempted to impose its control on labor in a much different way, which we heard about from Michael Punk last night. And there, the Anaconda Company, and amalgamated before that, uh, attempted to use state power to uphold um, its industries and to keep control of its labor situation. So essentially what we have here through Ramsey and Butte are two examples of models for corporate control that were reaching their peak and coming to fruition during World War I. So, Um, to explain what happened in Ramsey. Ramsey owned its, owed its existence to World War I. And as we all know, uh, during the, when war broke out in Europe, uh, there was an incredible demand for American um, materials. And of course, one of those was our minerals and particularly copper, which was so used for, as Michael Punk pointed out, electricity and armaments uh, as well. And so this created a tremendous boom time in Butte with uh, copper mining. 
Um, it's a, and, of course, a company that reaped the benefits from this. It's estimated that between 1910 and 1918, Anaconda Company doubled its assets in, in that period. By 1915, Anaconda assets totaled uh, 118 million, making it the world's largest copper uh, company. And, of course, hard rock mining requires tremendous amounts of explosives to break up the rock and allow it to be taken out. Um, and so the use of dynamite uh, increased exponentially as mining increased. Uh, the Bureau of Mines estimated that in 1916 alone, the consumption of dynamite grew by 233%. And of course, what this did was it created demand for a product, and the result was the price rise sharply during World War I um, for uh, dynamite. At this time, DuPont Demure's company the explosive company pretty much dominated the explosives field, and it certainly seemed to in Butte, uh, seemed to be the main company supplying Butte. And because of this situation, the DuPont company began considering building its own e explosives plant near Butte, maybe as early as 1907. And it began scouting out uh, places that it could possibly build a plant. And it went to Amalgamated, and it began uh, discussions about uh, deals that it could reach uh, where Anaconda would buy its, pretty much exclusively buy its explosives. And when that was reached in 1914, DuPont uh, decided that it would build a plant around near Butte. So it began looking for a good location. It found a good one west of Butte uh, where there was the confluence of uh, Browns Gulch Creek and Silverbow Creek. Uh, they began buying up the land there, the ranches there. They actually had a few magazines near there, so they knew about this place. And by 1916, they began constructing uh, an explosives plant and a village for the workers near there. Uh, it hired the firm from Spokane, Clifton, Applegate & Tool, uh, which came in, this is their construction camp, they came in with at least, one report says 300 working men to create the uh, plant set up a, a contractor's camp, a construction camp, big enough that it had its own little school for a while. And it began particularly with priority on building the explosive plant in 1916. And so throughout the summer of 1916 and fall, it began working on this plant. And the plant basically had kind of two parts of it. On the east side was the processing area where they built structures to house the, you know, the components and the chemicals that were needed to create dynamite. There's the office building. Um, some of the buildings were there that were there. And then over more on the west side, at a distance from the processing center, were a series of magazines that held certain explosives that they barricaded with cribbing and earth in order to contain any kind of explosions that, that potentially could happen in these. And these, these bunkers there were visible from the interstate for a long time, and I'm not sure they're still there now, but uh, they were a landmark for quite a long time. By the end of the year, in 1916, the plant was pretty much constructed, um, and, uh, uh, and the, the uh, village had been uh, created mostly, it was mo and then it was continued into 1917. And this shot shows the, the, the plant, the camp for the contractors, and then the, the village there um, partially completed. So 
By, by January 1917, the plant went into production and began creating dynamite for the Butte mines. So the town was under construction in 1916 and then into 1917. Uh, and in this place, they copied buildings that they'd been building in their other company towns um, and called those structures by the names of the towns that they originated in. And in this time, DuPont built, in World War I and in that early 20th century, they built something like nine company towns throughout the United States, a number of them in the West. Uh, and they brought those prototypes into this little company town that they used in those towns. So these are, they called them Hopewell Cottages from Hopewell, Virginia, a uh, plant that created gun cotton during World War I. Uh, the, the buildings at the far end on, on the left there were Louvier's uh, cottages uh, that the prototype apparently came from Louvier's, Colorado, near Denver, where again, big munitions plant. And the buildings on this end were DuPont, probably named after DuPont, Washington, where they had the exact same um, buildings there in their company towns. So these are Louvier's and DuPont in states of construction. In 1917, they had a major flood, so they took some great photos that shows us some of the structures that are there. Uh, these are Louvier's cottages, uh, the Hopewell cottages that look more, uh, um, more colonial revival, and here is a Louvier's cottage, and a street where we can see the Louvier's cottages, and then the boarding house that was down on the north end of, of Ramsey. So, by 1917, then, the, the uh, DuPont company had moved in its uh, management team that was moved in from other DuPont facilities, uh, had it brought in uh, skilled workers and their families to live in the houses. Some of them might have been local, but it appears that many of them were uh, DuPont workers brought from elsewhere. And they had constructed a boarding house where they had the laborers, and it Stories that I was told were many of them were actually from more from the local area. Um, and what we can see then by 1917 is that Ramsey exhibited all the characteristics of a typical company town. And in some ways, it makes Ramsey, I guess you would say, ordinary for a company town. The main characteristic was its uniformity. And that is within the town, there were only three styles of structures that characterized the, the, the cottages. Uh, the Hopewell, again, they all looked the same. They were all exactly the same. They've been altered over the time. Most of the structures there were the DuPont cottage. Again, 19, I think, out of the 28, if I remember correctly, were these. And these were, so there was uniformity within the, the community, and there was uniformity between DuPont towns as well. This is DuPont, Washington, and you can see the second house is that same DuPont cottage that's in Ramsey. Uh, this was a, uh, a home for single management men in Ramsey, but it is exactly the same as uh, this house here in uh, DuPont, Washington, although it wasn't named. Um, and this all, so there was uniformity within and among DuPont homes, but the uniformity didn't extend to the management housing in Ramsey. It was, it was more unique, this being the assistant superintendent's house. Uh, the superintendent's house hasn't been built in this. It wasn't built until 1917. Um, so they got their own structures. Everybody else lived alike. 
This is Louviers, Colorado, where you can see that same uh, square hip roof structure uh, that we brought there. Ramsey also was on a strict grid system for efficiency, for control, and uh, to make it easier to build. Uh, and there was a hierarchy built into that grid system in that the workers all lived pretty much in exact, exact same houses, exactly same setback, but the management lived here on the south end of town outside the grid in idiosyncratic houses with, uh, in comparison to the worker houses. Uh, so they lived on um, a little rise that would be above the rest of the town and apart from the workers, um, the skilled workers, and then the boarding house was actually at the far end there. Uh, it's not shown here because it had burnt down by then, but um, so there was a sort of class hierarchy. And there might have been an ethnic hierarchy in here too, as there were only a couple of households that had employees who were immigrants. And they, uh, two Irish families, Irish-headed families, uh, they lived more toward the north end of town. And of all the people here uh, that were um, householders or skilled workers that lived in the houses, there was only one family from the new immigration uh, that so characterized the early 20th century, and that was a fireman in the plant, uh, uh, was an Italian immigrant, as was his family. So there was a hierarchy, and there was a uh, class and ethnic div uh, division within the community in a subtle way. So the south end was the BAP uh, railroad depot. Um, you came up from that and entered into what they called Wilmington Row, Row which was management. Um, because Wilmington was the head of the DuPont company, the, the place of it. This is the uh, superintendent's home. Uh, definitely colonial revival to show that strong Anglo-American um, image. This is coming up from the depot looking north, and you can see the two uh, management houses before the superintendent's house was built. And it's kind of on a rise, so you can't see the workers' houses on the other side. At the far end, then, were the laborers who lived in the boarding house and um, set out more separately. This burnt in the 20s, um, so we don't really have any evidence much of it now. This town also was like all other company, or a lot of other company towns, but all DuPont company towns, and it had modern amenities. They put in a electricity to all the houses, there was indoor plumbing. Uh, there were sidewalks. Uh, they put sewer in, um, which you can see they're digging here in the street with this digging machine. The sewer emptied into Silver Bowl Creek, and they noted, the DuPont Company officials noted in the report that it made, it, 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 all that refuse could go into Silver Bowl Creek since it was so highly contaminated already that it wasn't <laughs> going to do it any harm. So it emptied there. Uh, there were sidewalks, and there was a uh, system of fire hydrants in the town and some uh, fire equipment as well. Um, it, they drilled their own well and had springs and provided water for both the plant and the town. Um, and they also provided recreation areas. There was a little park here on this end of town. Um, there was a skating rink that they put in. And then the company also sponsored a very competitive baseball team. And there's a number of uh, notations in the newspaper about the games that the DuPont 
team played, and they built a baseball field kind of north of town for it. Uh, so here's some shots, not great ones, but shots of those uh, teams playing in, in 1916. Okay, so um, were DuPont's efforts at, at making an oasis there a controlled environment for its workers um, uh, successful? How did, how did it actually work? Yes, it seems that during the war, from what I could find, Ramsey did have a surprisingly lack of turmoil. It seems like it was a harmonious community. So I could find no sign of labor or union unrest. I mean, I'm contrasting this in my mind to what's happening in Butte. DuPont was a non-union town. Um, so there wasn't any labor strife that I could find. Uh, DuPont was worried about the influence of Butte, but they were able to contain that. There seems to have been little or no ethnic strife, uh, and that may be largely because there was hardly any, um, there was not a whole lot of ethnic diversity in the town. Almost everybody was American, the majority were American born. Um, there were a few um, families that were, uh, had headed by men who had been um, naturalized as children. Um, like I mentioned, the, the Irish-headed family, and then the assistant manager was, um, had, been, had come from Germany as a child and been naturalized. Um, other people the, came from um, northern and western European descent, um, with a few immigrants from places like Finland that were skilled workers. Um, the boarding house had more ethnic diversity, but hardly any of it from this new immigration of Eastern Europe or, or Italy or, or, or places like Russia. The American-born householders were from mostly the upper Midwest, if they weren't from Montana, or places like Pennsylvania. So you'd think in some ways where you had the Irish and the Germans with a real stake in what was happening in Europe, that there might have been some evidence of strife or discrimination or some of the other things that were happening in Montana in Ramsey, but it doesn't appear that there was. Um, there doesn't seem to have been any disasters. There were some injuries that I found in the paper, but no disasters there. And I found no evidence of draft resistance. And that could be because I did find evidence where quite a number of the DuPont workers were exempted from the draft because it was a necessary industry. So we can see, again, it was an oasis in a time of turmoil, apparently. However, we can also see that, that um, these uh, workers in town um, paid a price for their, their oasis, um, which I'll explain a little bit in a moment. So let me explain a little bit the, the, the context for what DuPont was trying to do here. It was an oasis in some ways because DuPont could exert so much control over Ramsey. And doing this was part of a movement, welfare capitalism, that uh, sought to control workers because it was mostly inter interested in creating the most efficient production and profit making that it could. Um, and the layout of Ramsey and the physicality of Ramsey both expressed the purposes of welfare capitalism and reinforced it as well, reinforced the values of it and attempted to inculcate those values in the workers that were living there. 
Um, welfare capitalism then was not paternalistic. I mean, it, it was in one sense, but really what in the early 20th century DuPont was mostly interested in was making its production flow like a, a well-honed machine. And the biggest wrench in this machine was the problem of labor, the so-called labor question. And that is, it was in this time, it was difficult to find skilled workers who would stay with the, the company, especially after they were trained. Um, there was a constant turnover. Um, there was uh, a huge period in the late 19th and early 20th century of labor upheavals, of unionization, of um, attempting to control uh, the workplace through uh, by these skilled workers. As well, there was the worry about imposing an industrial discipline on these workers. And so in order to get them in line with the company, to make them work and make production work seamlessly, uh, companies were seeking ways to control their workers. Uh, and they wanted a so-called better class of workers that they could attract. So for, for some of these companies, there was an attempt to inculcate these values through providing them benefits. And one of the first things that many of them did, to cr the companies did to create efficiency, was to improve working conditions. That is, they redid the factory so that they had big windows and better lighting, uh, better temperature, more comfortable inside. They uh, improved safety and safety measures. They uh, instituted uh, sanitation and hygiene uh, abilities like putting in dry so that people could shower and change before uh, leaving work, those sorts of things. But some companies, famously the Ford company, went further than just improving the workplace in order to get better workers. They also moved into tr attempting to control workers' private lives. Um, and that was the idea that the home was the place where you, uh, you disciplined workers, uh, but you also needed worker, steady workers had to be sober, uh, they had to be, uh, know English, they had to have stable family lives, and so out of that attempt to control private lives came the idea of creating company towns. Now company towns are a good idea for some place like DuPont where they need a more isolated location and you have to have them, but they also are a way of, of getting a better worker. And of course, controlling leisure is also part of this as well. So the gun clubs that that uh, Ramsey had, the um, baseball games, the the uh, coordinated socializing, all was under the 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 uh, uh, auspices of the company. And what happened, of course, is that these workers, in many ways, had a pretty good deal during World War One, when the cost of living, the cost of housing. Uh, was going up rapidly, um, and they had well-paying jobs, non-unionized jobs, but jobs during World War I. But they paid a price for that in the, in the domination of the company on their lives, and we can see that physically through the layout of Ramsey, and also the surveillance that these families would have had from the company there. And I'd say also they, they suffered from the dependence on the company. They were pretty isolated, the, there, apparently there was no drinking allowed there. Uh, it was hard to socialize outside the confines of it. And certainly they were dependent on their 
livelihoods and their homes, because DuPont was their landlord too, for the survival of the company. And indeed, the benefits of DuPont and Ramsey were transient, because in 1919, when the war was over and copper mining crashed and the mines closed, the demand for dynamite diminished, and DuPont closed the, the plant in 1921. Subsequently, they tore, tore it down. Uh, they left the village pretty much vacant during the 1920s with just a watchman. And um, gradually, the whole social, wealth, social welfare and social engineering aspect of DuPont company began to dwindle. By the 40s, they've sold off their company towns. Uh, and in 1942, they sold Ramsey to a former employee who sold it off to individuals, and it became privatized. And by the 40s, really, certainly through the 30s, this idea of welfare capitalism had pretty much dwindled away. Okay. So, I'm concluding now and getting to my larger point. And that is what I think we can see here when we contrast what's happening in Ramsey to what's happening in Butte at this very same time is that we have two contrasting models of corporate control. And I'm not going to reiterate a lot of what happened in Butte because I think you know the story, right? It's a story of, of, of violent labor upheaval and dissent. It's a story of ethnic tensions, both older than this time period, but certainly ongoing during the war. And it is a time of, um, uh, it is a time of military uh, intervention and control. Butte gets put under martial law during this period. So it is a, a time, and it is a milieu that's a lot different than Ramsey as well, too, where we have an incredible ethnic diversity um, and a really an, a lack of, of um, an attempt by the corporation to, to uh, privately control all aspects of life, like, like it has in, in Ramsey. So one historian, Andrea Tony, argues that these corporations that were involved in welfare capitalism undertook the expensive steps to create places like company towns and programs for these extensive programs to control workers because they were attempting to stave off unionism, obviously, but also attempting to stave off the progressive reforms at this time that were moving toward trying to reform and better man labor management relations because the unions and the upheaval in labor was such a worry in this period. And the, these companies did not want legislated control over their workforce. Um, so they attempted to work control the labor force through privatized means instead. So she argues that in the end, this sort of privatized social welfare uh, programs on the part of corporations, even though they ended, she says that this model was victorious because what it did is it provided the basis for a relationship between government and corporations that underlies our own social welfare state that we have today. In other words, she's arguing that when state-sponsored benefits for workers came in, such as in the 1930s, 
they use this social, private social welfare as a basis and a model for that. And now we have um, a, a, uh, our welfare state institutions that are modeled on this uh, continuing participation between corporations and employers. Um, so Social Security being a good example of this. And that is, it's not a government program. It is actually a, a program that works in cooperation with the employer. And the employer contributes and the, and the employee contributes. Um, and therefore, it takes the participation of corporations to have this social benefit. And of course, it reinforces the corporate capitalistic order. And I think she makes a pretty good argument about this. But what Ramsey compared to Butte in the World War I makes me wonder is if really, in, real, in reality, if it isn't the Butte Anaconda copper mining model that actually won out in the end. Because what Anaconda did, instead of privatized corporate control in Butte, which we know Butte was the wide open town, right? The wide open city. Um, instead of privatized control like DuPont had in Ramsey, what it actively did is sought state interventions state interventions that would come in and uh, assist, it, assist the company in its production ventures. Um, and so in order to do that, it needed the cooperation of the state um, and the incorporation of its power uh, and the domination of its power as well. And the upshot was that there wasn't, according to Mary Murphy, that wasn't a strong progressive movement in Butte. And part of that was the domination of, of the company. So the company then thwarted reforms by dominating the state government. Uh, it controlled its image, now, unlike DuPont, who was doing it through its reputation of being beneficial. It did it through owning the newspapers. And the company exerted its powerful economic force to get its way within the state and uh, co-opt the unions with its own company members. So what we'll see is the model that comes from this, in my mind, is what Alice Hawley called the associative state, where you have the cooperation of the government, the federal government, state governments, and corporations. And it seems to me that this provides more of the model for what we have today than the, 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 wealth, the private wealth, social welfare that the companies like DuPont had. So what we see now is that in World War I, this creation of a beneficial cooperation between corporations and government uh, began to really flourish. Uh, and, and World War I then will give impetus to this cooperation, and it'll give a powerful uh, strength to both the federal government and corporations. So in the end, Ramsey is an oasis in a time of turmoil. But uh, I would argue it is not necessarily the model that our own um, welfare state now uh, is based on. So thank you. I hope I didn't go too long. Okay.